Good morning to all of you and greetings in Jesus' name. It is a real joy to be here. It's been quite some time uh, since me and my family were here, and it's special to gather in this way. And it's good for us to remember that uh, although things are still not like we wish them to be, yet they are far better than they were a few months ago. Let us not forget that. Yet today, we still feel like we are somewhat uh, restricted, and we are in some ways. And yet, this really is freedom compared to what March and April were like. God is good in the midst of it all. And so it is a, a privilege to be able to come up here and to gather with you in person. I also greet you in the name of the one who fights for us. And I invite you to 2 Chronicles chapter 20 for a text this morning. As we consider a story from the past, and at the center of that story is a powerful God who fought in an amazing way for the people. No doubt you have had experiences in your life where you didn't know what to do. Perhaps there was something in front of you on the horizon of your life, as it were, that, that looked huge, that looked impossible, insurmountable. And you had no idea how you were ever going to to move forward, how you were ever going to get through with this particular situation. And perhaps in your mind you thought, what will I ever do? What will I ever do? Or maybe someone came to you knowing that you were facing something big, and they said this, they asked you, so what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Well, in this story from years ago, there was a group of people who were facing something huge, facing something that looked impossible. And no doubt, some of those thoughts were going through their minds as well. And no doubt, some of those questions were being asked. What are we going to do about it? What are we going to do? And yet, that's not what they dwelt on, but instead, they moved on to this. Lord, we don't know what to do. But then what they said next proved <laughs> that they knew what the right thing was to do, and in fact, in doing that, was far greater power than anything they could have physically done. They said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And therein was the power for getting through that impossible situation. But our eyes are on you. 
Perhaps you're going through a situation like that in your life today. In fact, in many ways, it feels like the church as a whole is going through some of that as well. Lord, we don't know what to do. I want to challenge us this morning with a perspective of simply putting our eyes on Jesus. But our eyes are on you, Lord. And so the title of this message is simply, The Battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And I would like for us to look at this story. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 30. That's pretty much the whole story. However, we're going to look specifically then at verses 1 through 17. Uh, we won't get through the whole story, but we're going to look specifically at the first half of the story for the sermon this morning. But follow along as we read this. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. And it came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them other beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria. And behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art, thou, art not thou God in heaven and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not great power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If, when evil cometh upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house, and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us, Neither know, what we, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation, and he said, Hearken ye all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. 
And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korhites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall you be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come up against Judah, and they were smitten. For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much." And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Berakah, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the Valley of Berakah unto this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them, to go again to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and trumpets into the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they had heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest round about. What a story. Now... I want us to note the context here just a bit before we go any further. I think this is significant. But you notice the first phrase there in chapter 20 says, And it came to pass after this also. So immediately in your mind you're thinking, well, after what? What is it talking about? Something is significant. Something happened, and then it came to pass after that, that this happened. Well, turn back a page to chapter 19, and let's note the context here. King Jehoshaphat had just returned safely from battle. In fact, he had made an alliance, and this was actually somewhat of a weakness in Jehoshaphat's life. He was a rather strong man, and served the Lord, honored the Lord in many ways, but he did have a weakness in... Uh, developing alliances with ungodly kings, did it more than once, but this is one situation where he had an alliance with King Ahab. We know that Ahab was not a man who was honoring the Lord, but they went out to battle. In that battle, uh, King Ahab uh, lost his life. King Jehoshaphat returned from battle safely, and as he returned home, he was met by Jehu, 
which uh, with, had some words of admonition for him. <laughs> he said, King Jehoshaphat, what are you doing? What are you doing teaming up with those who do not love the Lord? The Lord is not happy about that. But along with his words of admonition, he also had words of encouragement. And those words of encouragement spurred Jehoshaphat to action. And we read here in chapter 19 that Jehoshaphat then took action. He was greatly involved in turning the hearts of the people back to God. It was a time of revival. It was a time of renewal in the land. And then he appointed judges to govern the people, and he commanded the judges to judge the people in the fear of the Lord. The end of verse 11 says, he's speaking this to the judges, he says, Deal courageously, and the Lord shall be with the good. And so, I'm saying that because the spiritual climate was right for facing the unknown battle right around the corner. Okay? I want you to consider that. That's huge. The spiritual climate was right for facing the unknown battle that was just around the corner. And so here in my Bible, I have chapter 19. The land was restored. The people were renewed. There was revival. It's a beautiful scene. Everyone's happy, fearing the Lord, right? And then I turn the page to chapter 20, and out of nowhere comes a big problem. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yes. That's the case in my life different times, it seems like. I just want to challenge each of you dear people with this, and that is staying current, staying up to date in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ is vital to experiencing victory in the unknown battles of your life. And there are battles to be fought. There are some battles right around the corner in our lives. You may feel like you're facing one now, but if the Lord tarries, there will probably be some more. Your success in those battles depends upon your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you being surrendered to his will. In fact, when we are faithfully, daily surrendering our lives to him, we can experience victory. Uh, that's not being proud. That's not making false assumptions. Dear people, that is believing the promises of Scripture. I challenge you with that as we move into this story. And so, as we look at this story this morning, let's learn some lessons about spiritual battle that can prepare us for the challenges we face today. And we'd like to, to look at these four points, verses 1 through 17 this morning. And the first is the problem. The second is the proclamation. The third is the prayer. And the fourth is the prophecy. We have the problem, we have a proclamation, we have a prayer, and we have a prophecy. We'd like to look at it in that way this morning. Let's note this problem here. 
And that's right in the very beginning of chapter 20. But here we have three enemy nations that are coming to fight Judah. Three enemy nations. Let's notice who they are, first of all. We have the Moabites, we have the Ammonites, and we have some joining them from Mount Seir. Now, it's important for us to note that the Moabites and the Ammonites, they, those people were a product of an immoral relationship uh, that Lot's daughters had with him. I find that interesting. Because then it seemed like over and over again, these people seemed to be a continual thorn in the side of God's people. Tempting them, fighting them, causing them to sin, drawing them away from the true God. And it all goes back to an immoral relationship. It all goes back to wrongdoing. Just a quick little bunny trail here. But yes, our actions today, our decisions today, they matter. They matter. Not just in our own personal lives, but in the lives of those that come after us. And that's why it's so important that those who come behind us can find us faithful because it affects their lives as well. And so this was the problem. These were the people. They were coming against God's people, Judah, to fight. Let's notice how many they were, because this matters too in this story. It wasn't just a few. No, it was many. In fact, in verse, uh, verse 2 here, it's referred to as a great multitude is coming. NIV refers to it as a vast army. And, and in fact, down in, in verse 12, when Jehoshaphat is praying... He refers to them as a great company. He said, it's, it's a huge amount of people. In fact, we're outnumbered. It's a great company. He implies that it's far more people than we have within us. It's far more. We're greatly outnumbered. And therefore, the initial response is, we don't have a clue what to do. This is not something that we can deal with, with who we have here. Greatly outnumbered. Let's notice where they were, because that's part of the stressful situation. No, they weren't hundreds of miles away at this point. But when the news came to King Jehoshaphat, the news was that here is a group of people, here is a vast army, that's coming from on the other side of the Dead Sea. They've already committed to coming. And let's just say in rough numbers, it may have been 70 miles away or so. But by the time the news got to King Jehoshaphat, the messenger is saying, but they're getting close. They're, they're close. They're on this side of the sea now. They're within 25 miles. Or you could say, they're within two days. <laughs> now you can imagine how that brought extra tension to the whole situation. So these are really mean people. It's a huge number of people. 
and they're close. Now, if that whole scenario wouldn't create panic, I don't know what would, but that's a scary situation. The problem. It was a significant problem. Let's note then the proclamation. What did King Jehoshaphat do about that? Here's the news. This is reality. What are we going to do about it? And in verse 3, we see that King Jehoshaphat was scared. He was scared. I mean, rightly so. I can imagine that feeling. And I'm sure many of the people were scared. They were fearful of what the future looked like. I say this thing of fear is a very natural response. It is. And it's a response that often immobilizes people. They're like, oh no, no. You know, something big comes up. Something huge is in front of them. And they're like, I, I can't even go any further. I, be, I mean, there's no way I can do this. And so they, they just sit on their couch and just sit there. Or, or maybe they go run in their bedroom and lock the door. You know, it's, it's, it immobilizes people, this thing of fear. But I would like us to note the influential power of a godly leader in the face of the situation. What did King Jehoshaphat do? Sure, he was scared. But his fear drove him to God. He sought God personally. In other words, he set the example by setting himself to seek God. It's a picture of resolve in the face of an impossibility. In other words, in the face of, of this, he chose to do this. Okay? He could have run, he could have done many things, but in the face of that situation, he chose to seek God, to trust Him. I simply ask us, what is our response in the face of something overwhelming? Is it retreat or is it resolve? Retreat or resolve? King Jehoshaphat set the example by setting himself to seek the Lord. In fact, his prayer then, well, in verse 4 we notice that Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. <laughs> yes, to ask help of the Lord. And so he rallied the people together. First of all, he set himself to seek God personally, but then he rallied the people to the same. He proclaimed a fast for the whole nation of Judah. And, and I want you to notice how it changed the atmosphere. I want you to notice how it changed their perspective. A situation that, that first of all, Jehoshaphat is scared. And if the king is scared, most likely the people are scared. But I want you to notice how this proclamation of fasting and praying changed the atmosphere and the perspective of the whole nation. And so, what started with fear ended with faith. And I want you to get this because it leaves a powerful example for us today. We have fear and we have faith 
But what do we find in the middle? Fasting. Fear, fast, faith. You know, this thing of fasting, praying and fasting, I believe personally is a winning strategy for conquering the battles in our spiritual life today. I want to challenge you uh, to make fasting a normal part of your Christian life. I don't know if you fast. I don't know um, how you fast, how often you fast. I've personally never done a long extended fast, but I have fasted very often over the years. And I have found huge blessings, great rewards in those days of fasting. I believe that fasting along with prayer is a powerful weapon in spiritual warfare that God honors. God honors. And it's one of those things that, that in, our, in our human minds, we can't really think it through. It doesn't necessarily make sense that, you know, if I do this, I get this. Sometimes there's things in the Christian life like that. You know, it's not like a mathematical equation where you can just figure it out and it all makes sense. And yet, I find that through fasting, it helps to weed out the many distractions in life, the many distractions that are surrounding the situation, and helps me to clearly focus on the heart of the matter. What is really real here? What is the truth? What do I really need to get out of this? I believe it also helps align us with God's will. Oftentimes, you know, God is here, and this is his will. He stated it clearly. And oftentimes, we are over here, where there's sort of a chasm between where we're at and what God wants. And I find that in those times of fasting and praying, it helps bring the two together. It helps bring me to where God wants me to be. It helps align me with God's will. And I also find that in this story, and I believe in a, in a congregational setting, in a larger church setting, fasting and praying also brings people together. We find that in this story. Fasting was a call that brought the people together. And that togetherness was huge in then helping them experience this victory. Now, let us note the prayer. And I say, what a prayer meeting this was. <laughs> what a prayer meeting this was. I want you to notice the picture or the example of togetherness that we see in this. Once again, verse 4 says that Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Do you see that? It implies that everyone came. Now, I don't know for sure if everyone, 100% everyone came, but it implies that, that every town was represented. I mean, people came from all over. This call to fast, this call to pray, was, was obeyed by, by many and by most. It shows how serious the people were. 
This was not a light thing to them. They came from every town. And then note verse 13. It says, All Judah stood before the Lord. A picture of many people, all the people, togetherness. All Judah stood before the Lord. You know, this wasn't just a, a men's prayer breakfast. This wasn't just simply a men's meeting. This, this wasn't even a special called session of conference. <laughs> no, it wasn't. But in fact, this was an all-out, it was a family affair. And you notice that. Everyone came. Dad and Mom came. The boys and girls. They all came to this meeting. And I say, what a beautiful picture that must have touched the heart of God. Seeing these families standing together, all these people, I can picture just the little ones standing there. No, they didn't know all the details, but dad and mom brought the children. This was important. This was serious. Their future was at stake. And God honored that. God honored that. Wow, what an example for us today as families, as dads and moms, bringing the children along, making them a part of these times of, of worship, making them a part of the battles of life, bringing them into the prayer meetings. There's a sense of togetherness that, you know what, we are fighting together in this when we do it as a family. Not just as a family at home, but a family as a congregation, as a church group. We are together in this. It's beautiful. And so in the face of this seemingly impossible situation, everyone was standing together, not only in body, but also in spirit. I mean, physically it says they were standing. But we also know that it was the spirit of togetherness. In body and in spirit, they were standing. You know, and I can just picture, when I, when I think of people standing, what comes to your mind? To me, it speaks of readiness. It speaks of anticipation. They're not just sitting, you know, aimlessly waiting. They're standing. They're anticipating. God's going to do something. We don't know what God's going to do, but He's going to do something. And so their physical stance, I believe, reflected that inner attitude. You see, once again, the people didn't know what to do, but they had faith that God did. God knew what to do. Their focus was not on the problem, but their focus was on the answer, and that made all the difference. They believed that God would move, and they stood anticipating it. Now let's note the content of their prayer. They came to ask help of the Lord. They came to ask help of the Lord. Dear people, when we come to ask help of the Lord, we can expect an answer. Mm -hmm. You can expect an answer. Now it may not be exactly what you're thinking, but God will always answer the sincere seeker. I'm convinced of it. And here the people came to ask help of the Lord, and this was their prayer. First of all, their attitude was one of trust in God's power and God's ability. Verse 6. 
O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou the God in heaven? Aren't you the one who rules over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And you're the one who in thine hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand thee? Are you not that God? Their attitude was one of trust in God's power and God's ability. They knew that God was able. God was the mighty God, the creator God, the one who, who turns the hearts of all men and turns the hearts of even the heathen. He's in control. He's sovereign. You're that God. None is able to withstand thee. That was their attitude. They were confident in God's power and God's ability. I also note that they remembered God's faithfulness in the past. Verse 7. Notice how in verse 6, they refer to God as Lord God of our fathers. In other words, God, we know that you can do it today because you did it back then. You were the Lord God of our fathers. You brought them through. And we'll look in a few moments about some of that. But they remembered that God had brought their fathers through difficult situations. And now, look what they call God today. Verse 7, art not thou our God? <laughs> That's beautiful. Lord, you remember you were the God of our fathers. And you delivered them. Today you're our God. Therefore, we look for deliverance. But they remembered God's faithfulness in the past. You're the God who drove out the inhabitants. You're that one. They also, in this prayer, reminded God of his promises to his people. Verse 9. They reminded God. Have you ever reminded God of what he had promised? <laughs> now, certainly, God doesn't have a poor memory, okay? You don't have to remind God of anything. He remembers. But yet sometimes I found myself doing that before when I'm, when I'm praying and really seeking God's face in something and I'll, I'll remind God about something. You know, it's really more about me than him. It's more about just having confidence that I'm telling myself that God did it in the past and he can do it again. It's not really about reminding God, but here they reminded God of his promises in the past. They said, God, you told us, you told us if we ever get in trouble, if we ever have a problem, that you will help us. We're supposed to cry out to you, and you will hear, and you will help. Reminding God of what he said. You know, prayers like that can build confidence in our lives then. In fact, we're remembering what God said. We're remembering what God did for his people years ago. We're remembering how great God is. And in that memory, then, we find confidence in the present. Another part of their prayer was acknowledging their insufficiency. And perhaps that was the crux of the whole thing. Verse 12, they acknowledged their insufficiency.
dear people, it's only when we acknowledge that, that we cannot do it ourselves that God can truly do His work in us and through us. As long as we hold on to some false assumption that we have some part to play in this, that somehow success somehow has to do with who we are or what we can give God, as long as that's part of our plan, the plan won't work out. But it's when we, com it's when we completely <laughs> give ourselves to God and say, God, there is nothing in me, there is nothing about me that warrants your mercy, that warrants your grace. Whatever happens is because of you. And I see here, they acknowledged that in their lives. They said, we have no might. We have no might against this great company. We don't even know what to do. But once again, our eyes are on you. I think within that prayer, there is quite an outline for our prayers today. Study it sometime when you have a chance. Look at it again. Look at the outline of that prayer. I believe it's a good outline for our prayers today. Let's note yet the prophecy that we find in this story. And here, verses 14 through 17, we have where the people are gathered together. King Jehoshaphat was leading this prayer meeting, crying out to God on behalf of the people. And then a spirit-filled man delivered God's message of encouragement and strength and victory. And he concluded by giving the promise of God's presence. How we need spirit-filled men like that in our churches today. You know, there's so many negative things to think about. There's so many negative things that you could say in these days. And yet we need spirit-filled men that stand up in our midst and encourage people. Give words of edification. Give words that encourage people to keep keeping on. Encourage people to put their eyes on Jesus. Encourage people to get their eyes off of their problem and put their eyes on the answer. We need men like that today. I challenge each of you men and women to be that one in your congregation. To be one that stands up and shares a message of encouragement and a message of hope in the midst of storm. But I want to stop here and I want us to ponder a little bit what this spirit-filled man had to say to the people. And there's some key points in verses 15 and 17. First of all, he said, these are things that you do not need to do. Don't do these. Verse 15, he says, for the battle is not yours, but God's. This is not your battle. Well, that's an interesting thing to say in the face of a huge fight. <laughs> this is not your battle. 
verse 17, he says, Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Now, let's just stop for a moment. I want you to imagine the possible response of the people when this man said this. And I can, I can imagine, I can picture right now some standing in the congregation. You know, in every congregation, there's some that tend to be a little more critical, some that tend to be a little bit more on the scoffing side of things, perhaps. And I can picture some that were there that day, and when he said that, they were like, <laughs> yeah, right. What do you mean this isn't our battle? What do you mean we're not going to have to fight? This is very much our battle. If we don't do something, we're dead. And so I can, I can, I can hear a little coughing, <coughs> a little chuckling sort of, sniffling, that approach. And yet, I can also picture many others in that congregation that when they heard those words, they said, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, yes, you can do it, Lord. It was a response of, all of a sudden, it was a reminder that we don't have to carry this burden. <laughs> we don't have to do this. This is, this is God's battle. Can you imagine how that would feel? Oh, wow. Thank you, Jesus. But then he also said in verse 17, Fear not, nor be dismayed. And so three things he said that they did not have to do. This is not your battle. You do not need to fight. And do not be afraid. Okay. Well, all three of those go against our normal way of thinking, right? <laughs> they go, they're, in, they're, in, they're contrary to the natural way of processing the battles in our life. And then he goes on, he didn't say it in these words, but he had certainly implied that God was going to fight this battle for them. In fact, in verse 29, after this story is, is pretty much over, look what, look what was remembered. Look, look at how the community around saw this and perceived this. It says, verse 29, the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they had heard that Judah fought against... No, 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 it doesn't say that. It says when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And so the word that was going around town, the word that was going through the neighboring communities was not that, look what Judah did. Oh, they are tough. They played a good trick on... No, that wasn't the word at all. It was, look what the Lord God of Judah has done. Look what God has done. I say, what a testimony. What a testimony. You see, the people got out of the way and let God do business, and God got the glory. When we're able to get out of the way and let God get the glory, great things happen. And it's a powerful impact and influence on those around us. Now, this concept of, of God fighting their battles for them, God fighting for them, 
should not have been a new concept to the people, but instead a good reminder. And it shouldn't be a new one for us, but instead a good reminder. But I want us to notice a few examples from history, from before this time in the Bible, that, that shows us that God had made this clear in the past, that God was fighting their battles for them. Turn back to Exodus chapter uh, 14. Here we have the story of the children of Israel. They had been delivered miraculously out of uh, the land of Egypt. God had brought them out. You know that story. And here, they're in a tight spot, <laughs> okay? Here God brought them out of the land of Egypt. They're free, right? But now all of a sudden, they've got the Red Sea in front of them, and closing in fast behind them is Pharaoh and his army. Now, what in the world? I mean, that sounds like a mean God to me, does it not? <laughs> in fact, that's sort of what the people were thinking. But I want you to note, God had led the Israelites into a position in which they were not able to save themselves. All they could do was trust him for deliverance. There was nothing they could do. They were trapped. They were trapped. The Red Sea in front, Pharaoh and his army behind, the situation didn't look good. God had led them into that position. What does verses 13 and 14 say? And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. In other words, you're not going to have to do anything. Trust God. The Lord is going to fight for you. That's amazing. We have this picture here of a people who are scared, a people who are panicking, a people who are trapped. You know what? God allowed them into that position to show them something amazing. To show them something amazing. Moses was saying, I want you to stand still. You're not going to have to do anything. I want you to get ready and look what God is going to do. Someone has put it this way. When all you have left is God, you realize for the first time that God is all you need. When all you have left is God, you realize for the first time that God is all you need. You see, it seems that God just wants us, He wants to get us to the place of total dependence upon Him plus nothing. I mean, plus nothing else. Too often times we, we surrender a part of our life to Him. We said, we, we believe you, Lord, I trust you. And yet there's something that we're still holding on to. We're not quite sure. And so we sort of have an escape route, as it were. We, we trust you, Lord, 
But in case it doesn't work out, I've got this. God doesn't do His work in a situation like that. God does not truly do what He wants to do in our lives when we have an escape route. And here in this little story in Exodus 14, we find once again that God led them in a position where there was no way out. There was nothing they could do except trust Him. And in that situation, God revealed His glory and deliverance in a powerful way. Now, another illustration here of, of how this thing of God fighting for them uh, should have not been a new concept, but simply a good reminder, was when we read through the book of Deuteronomy, we, we read a number of times where that God promised the children of Israel he would fight for them. In fact, at least three times, and maybe more, he says, I will fight for you. I will fight for you. He reminded them of that. As you're going on this journey to Canaan, I'm going to fight for you. And then in the book of Joshua, we read that once they had finally got there and they had conquered, wow, how successful. You know, that's, that's the natural feeling, right? We did it. Woo! That's our natural tendency. And Joshua stood, that's right, Joshua stood there before the people there, before, before he passed away. It was kind of his final farewell. He stood there and he said, I want to remind you, I want you to remember that you are here and you are who you are. You have what you have, not because of anything you did, but because of who God is and what he did for you. It's because God fought for you. That's beautiful. The same can be said for us today. We are who we are. We are where we are. We have what we have. Not because of me, but because of God. It's because God is fighting for his people. That's a word of encouragement, brothers and sisters. God is fighting for us as a church. Turn to Psalm 44. Note this example as well. Psalm 44. And here we have a psalm. It's a perspective of humble dependence upon God. Humble dependence upon God. Verses 1 through 8, Psalm 44. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days in the times of old. Okay, so the psalmist here is saying, our, our fathers and our grandfathers, those who, who have gone before us, they've told us these stories. <laughs> they've told us stories about all that you've done in the days of old. I wonder, are we passing on stories of God's faithfulness to our generations today? Tell your children about what God has done for you. Tell your children. Verse 2, how thou didst drive out the heathen with thy hand and plantest them. Or what he's saying, you drove out the heathen, but you prospered your people. 
How thou didst afflict the people and cast them out. For they got not the land in possession by their own sword, neither did their own arm save them, but thy right hand and thine arm and the light of thy countenance, because thou hadst favor unto them. Thou art my king, O God. Command deliverances for Jacob. Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name will we tread them under that rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, neither shall my sword save me. But thou hast saved us from our enemies and hast put them to shame that hated us. In God we boast all the day long. And praise thy name forever. Selah. In other words, think about that a while. Think about that. In God we boast all the day long. And praise thy name forever. Why? Because God is fighting for us. That's why. <laughs> because God is going to fight our battles for us. Once again, it's a psalm of humble dependence upon God. I am who I am. I have what I have because of God, not because of myself, not because of what I can do or have done. You know, there are a few things that, that make me feel as sick as when I'm having a conversation with someone, especially an older person, who is recounting stories of their life and saying, telling me all about what they've done in life. I've done this and I've done that and, 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 I, and I made this good decision and I did this and look at my family. And, and, and they never give God the credit for that. They simply come across to you as, look what I did. We made some good decisions. Yeah, we could have done that, but we did this. And it just kind of leaves a pit in your stomach like, wow, you're missing something, brother. You're missing the power. We have that story in the book of Acts where King Herod gave a great speech and the people said, this is not the, this is not the voice of a man. This is the voice of a God. And what happened? Because Herod did, did not give God the glory for that great thing that he did, he was eaten by worms. Wow. What an end. He was eaten by worms. It says because he did not give God the glory. You know, the spirit-filled man then concluded his prophecy with these words. For the Lord will be with you. Back in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 17, he says, For the Lord will be with you. And the same promise is ours today in the battles that we face. You know, don't think for a moment that you're fighting your battles alone. <laughs> Listen, God takes your battles personally. In fact, if you're not winning, it's probably, it's not because God doesn't care. Okay, mark that down. It's not because God doesn't care. It's probably because you're trying to help him. God doesn't need your help. He doesn't want your help. God is God alone, okay? And He is fighting your battles for you. Just simply surrender to Him. Give them to Him. Cast your burden on the Lord and He will sustain you. 
And in the words of this passage, the encouragement is, Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Stand still and let him fight for you. Now, notice what this man said the people were to do. We noticed a few minutes ago what he said, you do not have to do this. Now he's saying, do this. What did he say to do? He said, set yourselves. Okay, that's one. Set yourselves. Then he said, stand ye still. All right. Set, stand, and then he said, see the salvation of the Lord. Set, stand, and see. Those are things that he said you need to do. Now, stand still. In other translations, it says, stand firm. Or the Hebrew literally means to make yourself to stand. In other words, don't let your heart fail you. Don't let your heart sink. Don't stumble in unbelief. But with a quiet mind, look up to God. Stand still. Stand still. Make yourself to stand. That's something that you have to do. In the midst of all the other things you could do, and in the midst of your flesh screaming to do what feels right and what you want to protect yourself, no. Set yourselves to stand. Don't let your heart sink. But with a quiet mind, look up to God. In other words, standing still is more of a frame of mind than it is a posture of your body. It's not talking there about actually physically standing. It's saying, in heart and soul and mind, stand and prepare to see what God has in store for you. Psalm 27, verse 14, reads this way. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Wait and be still. And dear people, let me just say that those two commands to wait and be still, they are not a picture of indecision. It's not a picture of disbelief, unbelief. It's not a picture of disobedience. Instead, it's an attitude of quiet confidence and trust in our Almighty God. Wait on the Lord. Be still and know that I am God. Our victory in spiritual warfare depends upon God. Once again, as we've noticed this morning, the battle is His. And our one responsibility is to stay obediently in His will. To surrender our will to His. And to stay obediently in His will. And dear people, when we do that, victory is assured. Victory is assured. Why? 
Because God is fighting for us. What a promise. What a blessing. What encouragement to my heart. And I trust that can bring a spring in your step as you go on from here this morning, remembering once again that the battle is the Lord's. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, you have blessed us so richly with another opportunity to gather around your word with your people this morning. Oh God, help us not to take this for granted, but help us to apply ourselves. Help us, Father, to make the most of these opportunities, for the time is short. Lord, thank you for these challenges. Thank you for these words of encouragement from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And Father, I pray in our moments of difficulty, in the heat of the battle, that we would be reminded to cast our burden on you, to stop feverishly trying to do something about it, but instead look to you as the answer, to quietly look to you, to find our confidence in you, to trust you even when things seem uncertain. And Father, help us to then stand on the promises of God and one being that victory is assured when we commit ourselves fully to you. Lord, we pray your blessing on this group of people today. Bless their lives. Give them energy. Give them endurance. Give them a zeal for you and your word. May this congregation be unified under the banner of the cross. And may they be vigilant in reaching out to one another, spurring each other on to holy living. Until you come, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll call for a song.